Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Emma Hallam, a consultant therapeutic radiographer who leads the award-winning Macmillan Nottingham Radiotherapy Late Effects Clinic here in the UK. In this episode, we will focus on Emma's fascinating career and how she has developed this pioneering service. Emma qualified as a therapeutic radiographer from the University of Derby here in Britain and started her work life. She also has a Master of Science in Advanced Practice in Radiotherapy and Oncology and is a non-medical prescriber. In 2011, she joined the Information and Support Team and specialized in supporting breast cancer patients throughout treatment as well as reviewing treatment side effects for breast, prostate and lung cancer patients. Following this, Emma changed her focus to the support of head and neck cancer patients with radiotherapy side effects, including both management and psychological support. And as I said, she now leads the Late Effects Clinic, and this bespoke service is the first of its kind in the UK. We're going to get into that. Emma is also a lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University in South Yorkshire, providing education on late effects and helping healthcare professionals to deliver personalized care agendas. She's busy and productive in all aspects of her clinical and academic life, and we're fortunate that she's found the time to join us today. Of note, Emma always wanted to be a professional dancer, but as good as she may have been at that profession, how wonderful that she chose her current profession. Very privileged to have Emma with us today, as I said, and I look forward to hearing more about the amazing work she's done throughout and what has been thus far and will continue to be, I'm sure, an extraordinary career. So, Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's delightful for us. So, Let's start at the beginning. You graduated from the University of Derby in 1998 and went straight into work as a therapeutic radiographer. I love origin stories. So tell us what took you into this field and how your career has developed. Well, I first became aware of therapeutic radiography and radiotherapy when a friend of mine at the age of 16 had a brain tumour and had to have some radiotherapy treatment. And I just saw the interaction that my friend had with, with the radiographers on a daily basis and just thought I always wanted to have a job in a caring career, but I really wanted to get that therapeutic relationship. So that was it, really. And I followed it ever since. Okay, so it's intriguing how often people do have a personal relationship to a disease process that that guides them into medicine. For me, it was getting appendicitis as a kid and just being in awe of the surgeon who looked after me. So I mentioned in my introduction Macmillan, which is a familiar name for British audiences, but we have several people listening to this podcast, I'm sure, from multiple countries. Give us a 30,000-foot view, an advertisement, if you will, about the genesis and work of Macmillan. Okay. So Macmillan is an amazing charity that is dedicated to doing whatever it takes to support people with cancer. They're at the end of the phone, they're online, and they have a vast array of Macmillan volunteers who support patients through and beyond treatment. There's also a wide-ranging team of Macmillan health professionals, just like myself, who work tirelessly across the UK to help uncover people's needs and then helping to address them. As a Macmillan professional, we ask the right questions and provide the answers. We're creating new services, such as the one that I've done, adapting old ones and speaking up on behalf of those affected so that governments take action. 
And if something isn't right, Macmillan will fight very hard to fix it. So I mentioned the term late effects in my introduction. Talk to us about what that means and the work you do at the Macmillan Nottingham Radiotherapy Late Effects Clinic. Maybe start with the inspiration and principles, and then I think it'd be good to get into some specific uh, malignant diseases. So a late effect is a side effect from treatment. So in, I'm talking about your radiotherapy treatment in particular that either doesn't settle by six months post-treatment completion or one that can develop many months, years or even decades later. And this is due to the progressive nature of radiation-induced fibrosis, which is an unintentional, unavoidable consequence of all radiotherapy treatments. Our late effects clinic was the brains of one of our amazing clinical oncologists, Dr. Judy Christian. She gained funding, provided support and advice. But as radiographers, we were the ones who set up the service and developed it to what it is today. Our service is a fully holistic clinic that offers support, advice and management for all physical and psychological effects that a patient may be experiencing as a consequence from their radiotherapy and chemotherapy treatment. Since we commenced in 2013, we have seen referrals increase year on year, and we've now developed to screen for late effects in some of our higher risk groups as well. And that is the head and neck and gynecological cancers, because we know there are so many patients out there living with and beyond cancer who have have so many high unmet and unaddressed needs post-treatment. Okay, so maybe it would also be useful to set the scene about what I like to call the difference between the disease and the disease, the sequelae of the treatment, the emotional impact of being diagnosed with the big C, living with, you know, living with cancer. What does that mean? What percentage of people have symptoms after treatment? So you wax lyrical and wax free about these these topics. So it's very difficult because I think there's a num- many patients out there living with consequences of treatment that aren't being addressed. But we know that in 2013, Macmillan did some work on living with and beyond cancer, and they found that over 2 million people were living in the UK with a consequence from their treatment. And over 70% of those patients had actually finished 10 years ago, had actually experienced a physical health problem in the last 12 months that was directly related to their cancer treatment. So this was really profound for us. And we was like, well, there were so many patients out there. We've got to set this service up. We know that cancer and its treatment not only leaves the gruelling physical effects, but also this mental legacy for many years after. The issue and the problem with late effects management is that that patients come and everything is multifactorial. They don't just come with one consequence of treatment. The majority will all have fatigue of varying levels. We know that that's the most commonly reported side effects of treatment up to 10 years out. But also we have much more the psychological challenges. So we see a lot of patients with survivor's guilt. And these are patients who feel that they should be grateful to be cured. Or they'll say to me, well, I told, I was told I shouldn't expect this, but I didn't expect it to be as bad as it is. And lots of patients have adjustment difficulties, adjusting to their new way of life. We see relationships break down. Many patients can't return back to work. We have problems with sexuality, reduced cognitive functions, all these things that really impact our psychosocial um, way we are really can have such a profound effect for these patients. Yeah. So let's get into some of the specifics. You originally focused on breast cancer. And since you were clinically involved in the acute setting, There have been changes in therapeutic approaches, certainly throughout my professional life. Can you address some of the late effects in this wretched disease, lymphedema and such like? 
Yeah, so the main referrals that we get for breast is actually for pain. And a lot of that is due to the fibrosis. So again, this radiation-induced fibrosis that we see. I'll tell you what, before you dig into that, why don't, for the benefit of people who are not familiar with what that means, explain it. Explain what fibrosis is. Okay, so radiation fibrosis is something that can affect any of the tissues that are within the treatment area. And it really is this fibrotic change. It's the laying down of a protein known as fibrin and collagen deposits that just continue to build over time, resulting in changes to elasticity, the actual function of that area. So it really can have such a significant impact onto a patient's functioning. Okay. So you were saying that the major reason for referral in breast cancer is pain. So talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, so a lot of patients will, like I say, they'll have an actual physicality to this pain. So it'll be, it could be some fibrosis, it could be some lymphedema that causes the pain, but also it's a lot around the psychology of pain because a lot of patients will have associated this pain with having that cancer diagnosis. So we really have to work on trying to turn those pain receptors down and help them to live better with how they are with this pain. But then we also get lots of peripheral neuropathy, which is due to nerve damage, often more by the chemotherapy. We see patients with breast breathlessness, lung damage. Some patients will have cardiac issues as well, although the way treatment is planned now, it's very rare to see that. And lots of patients will come from breast with menopausal symptoms. So it really is a a very wide range of of issues and problems. What about, I mentioned psychological issues. Do you get involved in women who are dealing with breast cancer? And of course, a very small percentage of breast cancers are in men, very small. Mm. Well, actually, first of all, do you see men in your clinic with breast cancer? Yes, I think we've had to fair only about two that we've seen male breast patients. But yes, absolutely. Uh, And that, again, has been with this like chest wall tenderness that they've had. Yeah. So you can do the same for other tumours, can you? Like, can you go over prostate, lung, colon? Give us some, some thoughts. Yeah, so I'm going to lump, pump all them together really as pelvic patients. And we're known, and there's been a lot of research actually into something known as pelvic radiation disease. So this is where a patient will have one or more side effect from their treatment. And there is a pelvic radiation disease association, which has worked tirelessly over over the years. And we've just actually produced, and I was really lucky to be involved in this, some best practice pathway for pelvic radiation disease. So if anyone wants to look that up, it really does have everything that you could ever want to know about this disease. But in terms of the numbers, Joe's Cancer Trust did some research with cervical patients and they found that 88% of patients were experiencing at least one consequence, but only 10% of those had actually had any treatment for it. And pelvic radiation disease found that over 100,000 people were living in the UK with pelvic radiation disease. So what does that mean then? Well, really, it's it's all to do with bowel and bladder problems, um, essentially. So in terms of bowel, it could be profuse diarrhea, constipation, rectal bleeding. This often can lead more to bile acid malabsorption small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, an alteration of gut microbiome. And patients will often say, you know, I cannot leave the house. I had one patient who'd actually adapted his van to have a toilet in the back because he could not be that far away from a toilet. With bladder, we get a lot of patients with incontinence and urgency and constant repeat um, UTIs. We then need to think about the sexual function and menopausal symptoms. So a lot of patients will get erectile dysfunction. Will The ladies will get vaginal stenosis and vaginal dryness. You know, so this can have such a big impact on them. 
In terms of bone and skin within the pelvic area, we see a lot of, well, I say a lot of patients, we see patients with sacral fractures. These sacral insufficiency fractures really tie hairline fractures that can be excruciatingly painful. And we also see a number of patients with radiation-induced lumbar sacral plexopathy, which again is really hard to diagnose. And we have had a number of patients with these necrotic vulval ulcers that they've lived with for many years and not sought any help for. Wow. Well, why do they not seek help? I think a lot of the time is they don't know where to go. Often they've been discharged from routine follow-up. They may have been dismissed by a GP because GPs are not expert. Primary care is not the place for these patients. And often they don't know where to go to. So you often find patients who've been living for many, many years with these consequences that often get worse as patients get more other comorbidities as they get older. And they'll say, you know, why wasn't I referred to you earlier? Why didn't I know about your service earlier? Well, that begs the question, why don't they? What can you do to educate doctors more about it? What can you do to educate patients who are coming in for treatment where they're going to be told, hey, listen, there may be some late effects of this radiotherapy and you need to know about this service. Should should these be issues for you? Yeah, so I mean, we work really hard here in Nottingham. I know a lot of other centres do now that have got late effects services in educating patients, particularly at the end of treatment, because the... The thing with patients is when they're given a cancer diagnosis, most patients will take any side effect. And I don't think we've not been very good in the past um, as healthcare professionals at kind of, you know, explain to a patient what this late effect may possibly mean to them. You might just say, well, you get some peripheral neuropathy. But if you're a guitar player, that's really significant. I've got university lecturers and teachers and telecall people who didn't realise that they'd have to give up their job because their dry mouth was so bad. So these things, and I think we're better at that now. And certainly the new consent forms that we've got from the Royal College of Radiologists, they are excellent at letting patients know and that risk versus benefit of the side effects. But I think it's all about patient education. It's also about education, the other the wider healthcare professionals. When we set up, we certainly spent a lot of time in primary care starting to educate patients. But even within our own trust, some of the clinical nurse specialists and some of the actual consultants do not refer to us. And often it's because they don't think it's bad enough to need a referral. And I say, if it's bothering the patient, regardless of what degree of toxicity you think that is, that patient should be seen in our service because it should be about what matters to the patient and not what you think matters to the patient. Right. So your work has expanded to include follow-up for head and neck cancer patients. And we need to do better at early detection, something I've talked and written about. What are your thoughts? The HPV-induced cancers do better than those induced by smoking and so on. But again, stomatitis and dry mouth must be really tough to live with. I'd like you to first give those who aren't familiar what that feels like to have a chronic dry mouth and then talk about head and neck cancers more generally. So over to you. Okay, well, the first thing to say is that I will say that 99.9% of patients who have head and neck radiotherapy will experience a dry mouth for the rest of their life of varying degrees. For some patients, this will just mean that they've got to constantly have a sip of water. But for others, it will mean that they will have dental caries, they will have bad breath, they will have constant recurrent thrush. 
they will have pain, they will have ulcers, they will not be able to eat because they can't masticate and they haven't got the enzymes in there to help them break down the food. So it's a whole array of things. Then they become malnourished. Like I say, we have relationships break down because patients don't stay in the same bed anymore because they think that their breath smells so much. They stop eating with their families. So dry mouth is one of the biggest and hardest things I would say to deal with because for a lot of the time I'm trying to help the patient realize that actually this is for life so what can we do to help you live better right so what about you've mentioned a bit about pelvic late effects again if you can give some perspective of what it is to live life with these kind of sequelae and and again make making the point that things are better nowadays the results are better nowadays than they used to be yeah so do you mean in terms of head and neck jonathan Head and neck and pelvis, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, with head and neck, it really is, for me, about this early identification. This is what I've really focused on because I truly believe if I can identify some of these late effects early enough, so the start of the buildup of radiation-induced fibrosis, that early lymphedema that often isn't identified and managed, then we can stop it solidifying, stop it becoming um, as progressive. And a lot of this is by just trying to maintain function. So we've designed some specially designed exercises with myself, um, the speech and language team, lymphedema team and the physiotherapy team. And we really believe we can help with this. So if we can keep a patient's mouth opening, keep that TMJ joint moving, you know, we can stop that degree of fibrosis building to where they can't open their mouths anymore. So for me, it's really about addressing these symptoms helping the patients to understand them a lot of this once you start to explain to a patient why they're experiencing you can drop a pain score by two to three on a quality of life score because the patient understands it and you might not actually have given them any medication to help deal with their bowel problems so it's really about that level of understanding education and letting them know that there are services out there that can help with and help them to live better with how they've been left yeah so you've already attacked a number of areas of malignant disease Tell us what areas of healthcare you'd like to see your clinic move into in the future. Well, in my dream would be that every single patient who has had radiotherapy and chemotherapy has access to a late effect service, regardless of postcode, regardless of tumor site, and regardless of how long they've been out of treatment. I think we have a duty of care as health professionals that we have caused these problems, that we need to be supporting these patients for the rest of their life. Yeah. So every every patient having radiotherapy. So through, throughout your career, uh, I mean, you've won several awards, such as the Radiographer of the Year Award for the Midlands Region and the Macmillan Professional Excellence Award, to name just two. I know that you've a rather humble take on this, but what aspect of your work has garnered these plaudits? And importantly, if you woke up tomorrow and were in charge of radiotherapy services in the UK, what would you change? So for me, I, I, I know why I've won these awards, and that's because I've gone above and beyond. This service would not be what it was today if it wasn't for me and the other, my other colleagues that work in this service really you know, sticking our necks out, not taking no for an answer when other clinicians have said, oh, no, the patient just needs to live like that, you know, and really just finding out what is out there to help these patients. For me, myself, I'm very much about seeing what is out there, what are other conditions using. I mean, one of the things that we've recently been really looking to get hold of is a photobiomodulation machine. And this has just revolutionized some of our head and network and some of our breast work as well. It really is starting to break down this fibrosis. And that, along with the exercises that I'm teaching the patients and this long term management, I truly believe are going to be 
we've found something quite groundbreaking here that can help live you know these patients live better with it is in the radiotherapy service specification guidance now that all centers need to be dealing with their related effects but that's not the same and there's no funding for it so you know my dream would be that every patient has access that every patient is told at the end of treatment about these late effects reminded about it and actually screened for late effects and that's something that we've been doing here in nottingham with these higher risk groups right So for clinicians who are listening in and reflecting on how a similar service might help their patients, talk us through the benefits, like how to set up a service, bringing other healthcare professionals into the fold, a holistic approach. I mean, I've already mentioned and asked you about better education of the general practice community and the patient community. Talk us through. Well, I think it's about really when you're setting up these services, finding out what services you've already got out there that are available that might be able to help you with your patients. It's also amazing when you start to knock on doors, which is exactly what we had to do. How many late effects patients from radiotherapy were sat in these other services and they didn't know what to do with. So it's about this collaboration, this collaborative working with health professionals to provide what's best for the patient. So, yes, that's really what I would say it's about just finding out. And also, you know, I've got services, I, I manage all the early head and neck lymphedema now because our head and neck lymphedema service is not on site, but other services will already have that there on site. So not every service needs to be the same. It's about what the needs are of your patients. Right. Traditionally, clinical research, especially for regulatory filings, has focused on clinician-observed results and objective measures of change, such as smaller tumour volume on imaging studies. But nowadays, PROMs, patient reported outcome measures, have become much more widely accepted. Can you talk us through that change of heart in your experience? Yeah, so I mean, we use PROMs all the time and we designed our own PROMs because I really believe that these PROMs really give the patient subjective bother, so their opinion and what matters to them. And what the great thing about PROMs is it allows us to, the patients firstly, to fill them in their own time. They're not pressured by the time appointment, how many people are waiting in the waiting room or the clinician sat in front of them. So you really get a holistic view of the patient and what matters to them. How many times I see patients and they go, oh, I forgot to tell the doctor that, or I didn't think they'd want to know that. Whereas a PROM really gives us that. It also allows us to tailor the clinic to the needs of the patient. So if with the head and neck ones that we do, if the patient hasn't got any swallowing issues, I don't need to have the speech and language therapist present, but they may have dietetic issues. So I'll get the dietitian there as well. We also enable to then tailor our clinics to the format. So if, you know, I don't need to examine the patient, I can do it via video. So it saves the patient coming in, it saves us time, it saves them time and it's cost effective all round. So they really are the advance that we need and are just we're just finding such a good response to them from the patients. Right. So if you can explain to the audience, well, to me really, how digital health measures have become such an important part of the service that your clinic provides, and frankly, in the broader delivery of healthcare, everyone's, you know, not everyone, but loads of people have digital, you know, smart watches and such like. What role does it play in your world? So for us at the moment, it is just the literally the digital proms, although we are working with the Swallows charity on an app that they've got, a report, a symptom reporting app. 
so it means that we'll be able to patients will be able to report symptoms in the real time and then get help and support throughout the UK on their late effects of their treatment. So they really can help to monitor patients, like I say, in their own home, in that real time. And then the other good thing I would say about these apps and and proms and things is actually there's a lot of patients who don't need to be seen, who come to clinic and haven't got any needs at all. And it allows us to touch base with these patients, monitor them, but then not actually have to physically see them or have any interaction other than maybe a message going back saying you're doing great, carrying with exercises, we'll catch up again, you know, in a year's time. So they really have changed the way healthcare is today. Right. So you're now an educator lecturing at Sheffield Hallam University. What do you think is the most important lesson you can impart to aspiring radiographers? I think it's always remembering that life will be different for most patients after treatment. Some will have the most amazing life ever after treatment because they see it as a way of, I've had this scare, I'm now going to go and be really healthy, um, move more. But for other patients, they will have an effect that will affect them daily for the rest of their lives. And we need to be aware of this. And also it's about listening to the patients, regardless of what their numbers are saying, regardless of how many times a patient's getting up and we're looking at the acute toxicity in the night for a wee or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's about what matters to that patient and what is bothering them and affecting them on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's always struck me throughout my career that as clinical services become more focused on data, some of the humanity of this can be lost. You, You are, after all, dealing with someone's you know, mother, father, husband, wife, so on and so forth, and and they need to be treated with kindness and respect. So finally, Emma, if you were out for a stroll and found an old brass lamp, gave it a rub and out popped a genie who granted you three wishes in the field of healthcare, what would they be? So it would be access for every single patient who has had radiotherapy would have access to a late effect service that there would be equitable funding for these services so that we're not constantly worrying where, you know, where our funding for the next three years is going to come from. We should not have to rely on charitable funding such as Macmillan to set up these services in the first place. It should be part of the NHS plan. And ultimately, that all healthcare professionals are really focused on the patient's subjective bother, what matters to them and not the perceived degree of perceived toxicity, just so that we can really be offering that personalised care agenda. Sounds wonderful. So, folks, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, Emma. I'm so impressed by the work you're doing to help those living with cancer. Please keep at it and tell the world about it. And I hope this podcast goes some way to further your mission. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for having me. So, folks, please subscribe so you never miss another episode. Tell your friends, like us wherever you get your podcasts, and check out our archives. There are plenty of great episodes stored there. And please join us next week for another fascinating foray into the wonderful world of medicine. Until then, this is your EMJ host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.